If you'd like, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 37. Uh, access it on your phone or it'll be behind me. And uh, I won't read it right now. We'll be reading it in the course of the sermon. But we're going to be looking again at the Sermon on the Mount. We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, as he um, unveils and as he talks about what true righteousness is, um, and he refers to the Old Testament law and uh, explains it and talks about the Pharisees and says our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. They would lower the standards of righteousness and Jesus communicates uh, what they are. Last week we looked at um, uh, the two commands in the New Test in the Old Testament, rather the sermon. The sorry, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Two of them: the command uh, against adultery and the command against murder. And we found that it was possible to do that in your heart. You know, Disney World has opened up, I think, yesterday, and uh, there is an amusement park in Japan that has also opened up, and as part of their promotional video on how to stay safe in their park, they've uh, shown a, a, uh, a video of two businessmen. They're, they're in the, the roller coaster. They're seated in the roller coaster car. That's their craziest, wildest ride. And they're in, one's in a business suit and one's in a dress shirt with a bow tie. And so they video them as they're going up and down this roller coaster and they're completely stone-faced. They don't make a noise, not a peep, not a sound. They don't open their mouths. And uh, then the, the, the background voice says, um, scream in your heart, not out loud. And so I suppose it is possible to scream in your heart and not out loud. As Jesus said, it is possible to commit adultery in your heart by lust, and it is possible to kill somebody, to murder somebody in your heart, even if you don't do it externally. And that was one of the ways that the Pharisees sought to lessen the difficulty of God's commands by taking the heart off the table. Today, what we find is they don't even adhere to the letter of the law. They, with sleight of hand, will take and will twist the words of the law and focus on some portions of the law and not other portions of the law and believe if they say certain things in a certain way and fill out documents in a certain way that they have fulfilled the standards of righteousness. And Jesus says that is not accurate. So... First of all, we're going to look at the subject of divorce in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me say at the outset that today, what often is done when uh, preachers deal with this particular subject, uh, because it is a subject that people are very interested in, there are people that have been through divorce, people that have difficulty in marriage, and so they tend to take all of the passages in Scripture and uh, give some kind of um, 
full-orbed explanation of what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. I'm not going to do that today. We'll look at a few other passages, but as it provides context to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Um, in fact, there's really only one other main passage, and that is the law that Jesus is referring to here in the Sermon on the Mount. Just as last week we dealt with two of the Ten Commandments, today we're going to deal with the law as it's laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Before we get there, just for clarification, so what does the Bible say in summary about a divorce? That there are two uh, legitimate grounds for divorce. The first we find here in our text, and that is sexual immorality. And the second is found in 1 Corinthians 7, where it's stated as if an unbeliever is married to a believer and that unbeliever uh, deserts um, his or her spouse, then the uh, believing spouse uh, may divorce and remarry. In addition to that, another important passage is in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus says that marriage is God's idea. It wasn't the invention of human beings that he brought Adam and Eve together and whom God hath joined together, let no one put asunder. We read that um, in the words of Jesus Christ himself. So now let's look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Probably strange. Uh, you probably aren't, uh, many of you aren't aware of this passage, but we will unpack it a little bit as it relates to Matthew 5. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the important idea here is that if a man divorces his wife and she remarries, he may never remarry her again. That's the crux of the law. So what did the Pharisees do? Well, they put the focus on the, the uh, dis distribution of the legal document. Um, basically, they said if somebody gives a certificate of divorce, they followed this law of Moses. Now, first of all, keep in mind, and Jesus made this clear in Matthew 19, that Old Testament laws related to divorce were not God's way of um, of authorizing divorce, they were simply um, God's way of dealing with divorce that was already existing in the ancient Near East and in Israel. It didn't authorize divorce. It didn't give God's imprimatur on divorce, uh, but it dealt with the reality as it was. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day would say, if I fill out the right form then I followed God's command here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Jesus says you need to look at the second half of the law that points out the, God, the heart of God 
on this matter. And there are two things particularly important to see about the heart of God on this matter. One of the things is that we learn from the law of God uh, when God discourages certain things uh, that we're to take notice. And he discourages. It's a, it's a heads up, men. If you divorce your wives, you're not uh, able to remarry them once they remarry. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a discouragement to divorce. And some of our laws work that way. Uh, when I was a teenager, a friend of mine and I were going to go swimming one day. There was a rock pit. And rock pits can be dangerous places to swim. We were good swimmers. We thought, well, we're, we're okay. It was a hot day like today. And, uh, but we saw a sign off in the distance. And I said to my friend, let's go take a look at that sign. Maybe it says no swimming. So we went over there, and uh, the sign said, by order of Broward County, do not feed the alligators. We did not go swimming. Uh, the, the ordinance was a discouragement to us from swimming, right? And so Jesus, in part, is saying you should be paying attention to the discouragement that God is bringing uh, to divorce. But even more importantly, uh, in terms of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, is he says, if you, um, when you divorce your wife, if she remarries, she has been defiled. Now, defilement in the Old Testament can be in terms of a ceremonial defilement, and it can be a moral defilement. Jesus is saying she is morally defiled. In other words, she has committed adultery. It's put in the, te- it, in the same way that Jesus puts it here to the Pharisees. Uh, you have made her, caused her to be an adulteress is the way that the law reads here in Deuteronomy 24. When you, when you divorce her and she remarries, she has been defiled. So Jesus is saying, Pharisees, Look at the heart of this law. The heart of this law says if you divorce your wife, she remarries, she's been defiled, you've made her an adulterer. Now, uh, Matthew chapter 5 is is kind of strange. You think, well, why is Jesus just talking about the husband and not the wife uh, in terms of, and why isn't the husband called an adulterer as well? And that is part of what you see in the rest of Scripture, that that is the case. But specifically, the answer to the question is Jesus is addressing pointedly his um, teaching on Matthew chapter, chapter 20, excuse me, on uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, which deals, deals with the specific instance of a husband divorcing his wife. And so the takeaways from that are, are obvious. Again, um, I'm not going to deal with... Um, Every single possible case, uh, you say, Pastor, you don't know uh, my particular situation, and I may not know your particular situation, and I can tell you that uh, they do not prepare you in seminary for every possible uh, convoluted uh, situation that you might find. Uh, At the same time, I'm not going to blunt the teaching of Jesus Christ on this subject. And so we learn that, um, that, first of all, Um, understand God wants you not to divorce. Again, there are two grounds for divorce. Uh, You don't have to divorce for those grounds, but God doesn't want you to divorce. That's not his desire. God does not want you to cause other people 
to be tempted to commit adultery by remarriage after you divorce them. Remember last week we talked about anger. We're not supposed to be angry. Anger is committing murder in your heart. And how we talked about we, we don't simply try to see what is the letter of the law, what loopholes can I find. No, we try to actually apply the heart of the law. And the heart of the law is we don't even want to cause other people to be angry. So Jesus gave the example. If you go to the temple and you've got your offering um, and you're ready to present it and you remember... Not that you have something against somebody else that you're angry about, but somebody has something against you. You've done something to them. They may be tempted to be angry against you. You don't want that. You're concerned about them not being angry for their own good. So you go to them and you reconcile to them. In the same way, Jesus is saying we not only are concerned about our own um, take on or understanding or application of divorce, and adultery, uh, but we're concerned about helping other people as well. And thirdly, from a positive standpoint, we think about how we can build up our marriages, um, that, that, that that is part of the practical application of this. What does it mean to positively seek to build up our marriages? Uh, we gave the example of the Apostle Paul saying that um, instead of stealing, that people are supposed to get jobs so that they may actually give to people in need. We take the law that says, thou shalt not steal. And we don't simply leave it there. We look at the positive application of that law. That's the heart. And so it's not just a matter of a document that we sign, a marriage document. It's a document written on our hearts as well. The second example is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is, it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, the, what, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Again, what we will find here is the Pharisees, uh, through sleight of hand, have taken an Old Testament command, an Old Testament practice uh, that has been given in the Law of Moses, and uh, they have sought to undo the intent of it. And that is when you make a vow or an oath, you keep your word. Oaths and vows are advocated in the Old Testament. In fact, they're even encouraged. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 is another example. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his, out of his mouth. And what we find at the time of Jesus, that this whole practice of making vows uh, or swearing oaths uh, had degenerated into this convoluted, uh, if I only say my vow in, this, in the right way at the right time, in the, 
in the, in the right kind of phraseology, then and only then do I have to keep my word. It wasn't, it wasn't simply a matter of, uh, if I say it under oath, then and only then uh, do I have to keep my oath. No, it has to be said in a very precise way. So Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary on the subject, says there was an ongoing epidemic of frivolous swearing and oaths. By your life, by my beard, may I never see the comfort of Israel if, fill in the blank, those were some of the oaths that people made. One rabbi taught that if one swore by Jerusalem, one was not bound. But if one swore toward Jerusalem, it was binding, evidently because in some way it implied the divine name. Their use of oaths was like children saying, I have my fingers crossed so I don't have to tell the truth. So the Pharisees were practicing this uh, version of making oaths as if they had their hands behind their back with their fingers crossed. They said, if I don't say it in exactly the right way, I don't have to keep my word. And Jesus says again in verse 34 and following, but I say to you, do not take an oath either at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is, it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Uh, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or as some translations say, from the evil one. So is Jesus' application here simply don't say anything under an oath. And there are branches of Christianity uh, that, because of Christ's words here, will not say anything under oath. Uh, they will not, for instance, um, and they're called on to, um, to make a profession of the truth in, in a court case. They will not swear. Um, Checked on what, what's the language today if you go to court. It'll be something like, do you swear or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Uh, they've taken out the so help you God. Um, and so there are some branches of Christianity that would not swear in that setting. Well, I don't believe that that's what Jesus is, as much as I admire people for trying to take Jesus seriously at his word. Um, there are several reasons why I don't think that's the case. Number one, Jesus himself was under oath. We see that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, where Jesus, uh, when in front of the high priest, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 said, I call God to my witness, to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Again in Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth. Under oath, I'm, I'm citing this under oath. And there are many other places in Scripture uh, that also refer to people vowing or swearing. If that were to be the case, literally only uh, yes and no, um, well, 
I guess our, our marriage ceremonies would be shorter. Nobody would be making any vows. Um, how about contracts? Uh, we can't do more than simply say, yes, this is what I agree to. Even a handshake. It's been said in the good old days, we did things not by a contract, but a handshake. Well, a handshake is beyond yes or no. What is Jesus saying here in the text? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who had completely corrupted this practice of making oaths and vows, you're better off not even to say anything because the point is you need to keep your word. The truth needs to be written on the dotted line of your heart uh, more than anything else. And you need to keep your word. How much is your word worth to you? I one time went to a car dealership to look at buying a car, and I was thinking about trading in my own car, and I had the salesperson came up to me and uh, said, um, I said, well, you know, I'd like to think about trading in my car and find out what kind of price I could get. And uh, I said, now the car has this problem and this problem and this problem. And the salesman said, uh, well, we won't bring that up with the manager. I won't tell the manager that when I get the price. And now he thought he was doing me a favor, but I thought if he's going to lie to his sales manager, he's going to lie to me. Um, and yes, honesty is the best policy. It makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, was it I might have saved $500, $1,000? Was my word worth $1,000? And it's, it's good to ask that question, but that's not primarily Jesus' point. Jesus' point has to do with your heart response to the command of God. What do you give to the God who has everything? You understand what it is that this command is saying. You try your best to understand it and its implications, and you give that back to God in service. It's about serving God from the heart. It's obeying the command from the heart. And so we do not attempt to twist God's word to lessen its difficulty. As I mentioned before, what the Pharisees did was they, they took this righteous standard of perfection in the law and they sought to lessen it so that they could keep it, so that they could justify themselves in God's sight to say, see God, I have done what you have commanded in Scripture. Now you owe me heaven. You owe me a relationship. The Bible says that the perfect righteousness of God is something that in this life we cannot attain. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ himself is the only one who has perfectly kept God's righteous commands. I don't know if you saw just a couple days ago Don Lemon... Um, said in passing uh, that Jesus Christ is not perfect. Um, well, Mr. Lemon, the Bible says that he committed no sin and there is no deceit found in his mouth. In fact, it has direct application to our text today uh, because we have found, as we've looked at last week's commands and this week's commands, uh, that that we find ourselves falling short of those commands in action or in heart. 
And with Jesus Christ, he had no deceit found in his mouth, even though we have been deceitful in our speaking and in our hearts. The Bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we place our faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. He met the perfect standard that you have not met and I have not met. You know, the law of God would be absolutely crushing and devastating. And that's why the Pharisees fudged it, because if they sought to be righteous in God's sight through the law, they would be absolutely crushed. But Jesus Christ has done it for us, and God has provided us righteousness in Christ through faith in him. We're granted a righteous record. And in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we're going to be celebrating here in just a few minutes, the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you and for me, that our sins might be forgiven, that he might take the justice, the punishment that we deserve for disobeying him and not meeting that standard. And so trust in Christ's righteousness. Humble yourself. Don't don't come pridefully before God and say, God... I am able. No, only Jesus is able. But as we come to him, saved by grace, loved by God, confident in what God has done for us, we don't have to pretend we're better than we are. We can admit the full standard of God's righteousness, the perfection that is his law, and our righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees. Not to earn our way into God's good graces, Because we already have that. But we, from the heart, will begin to obey God in ways that we have not before. And so that's the encouragement for you today as you trust in Jesus Christ. That you can have a righteousness that is not a fingers crossed behind your back righteousness. It is not a, if I don't sign it on the dotted line in exactly the same, the the right words, I don't have to keep my word. No, it is a righteousness from the heart that God, through his Holy Spirit, is working in your lives. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that Jesus Christ was one who was perfect in every way. He told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. And we trust in that perfect, that perfect righteousness, that perfect law-keeping And we trust in the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And yet, Father, it is our desire from the heart to not try to twist your word and not to lessen the standard, but that we might more and more meet the law's demands and the heart of the law as we come to you and we love you for the grace that you've shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.